0: Your contribution matters. So your contribution matters, it really matters. So make it matter, take work seriously. Playing small doesn't help anyone. You know, like the the bigger you are and there's enough room in the world for everyone to be at their best. What a place
1: that would look like. Welcome everyone to the Culture by Design podcast. I have with me today, Dan Collins from Sydney, Australia. Dan is the president and founder of Dan Collins Consulting, but let's get into his background a little bit. Dan is a four time Olympian. First of all, let me just say welcome to the podcast. Let me just say that first. Thank you. (laughs) We got to clarify here because the. You're a four-time Olympian in kayaking. Yeah. Okay, but help us understand because there's kayaking, there's rowing, right? So yeah. for our listening audience, give us some clarification on these events.
0: Yeah, great. So firstly, absolute wonderful to be with you, Tim. A real privilege to be asked. So thank you very much. So kayaking, rowing, and the two forms of kayaking sometimes get mixed up. So there is rowing and there are people who sit on their bums and go backwards. They go and backwards, they use, yeah. And they use a long oar. Kayakers sit and we face forward. And there's two types of kayaking. There's water kayaking, which is down rapids. And then there's dead steel flat water. And the flat water uses exactly the same course as the rowers. So that's why it's a little bit confusing. At Olympic Games, we normally follow the rowing program, rowing program first, and then kayaking moves in second.
1: Now, in (laughs) preparation for this podcast, I actually watched a little video, Dan, to tell you the truth. And I watched some K4 races, right? Like a thousand meters. Thousand meters, yeah. I think that's right. So you competed in four Olympic Games. What events did you compete in?
0: Over the course of my career, I focused primarily on men's kayak pair, so K2, two people. But I paddled at World Championships a lot of men's K4. So at Olympic Games, you normally only get an opportunity to do one event, whereas at World Championships, you normally do two events. And my second event was always men's kayak four.
1: So you did K2 and K4? Four, correct. Okay. So how... Did you get into this in the first place? <laughs> um, Take us back to your. Yeah, interesting, I guess. So,
0: where I lived in Sydney, where I grew up, was a long way from the ocean. And mum and dad, when I was younger, had a caravan, and on site, I don't know what you call them, but a caravan that was on site in a caravan park. And on weekends, we would uh, pack the car up and drive to an on-site caravan that was quite close to a beach about an hour and a half north of Sydney called Avoca Beach on the central coast. And most popular beaches in Australia have a surf lifesaving club. So I got involved in the surf lifesaving club and as luck would have it, Avoca Beach, uh, unbeknownst to me when I was younger, was a very, very strong paddling club so, when I joined, I was exposed to other people who were already good paddlers. And this is a great one for culture. You know, they've had a succession of amazing paddlers just because the kids who come into that environment, you just expect to be good because everyone's good. Everyone around you, everyone's good. So, <laughs> that's the expectation. you just, your expectations is, oh, I'll be good, you know. Uh, so, yeah. as I moved through the ranks, You're rubbing shoulders with the very best in that chosen field. And it was quite a relaxed environment. There was no strong internal competition or comparison. It was quite relaxed and welcoming. And everyone was always welcome. And it's one of the things I try to do with my surf club here in Sydney. It's just everyone's welcome, you know. So... And with that, you get an opportunity to compare yourself at the self-level against other champions. And that's what I did as, I, as a kid. And I grew up around these amazing men's and women's paddlers. And as it turned out, I ended up pretty good myself.
1: What, how old were you when you started?
0: So surf lifesaving gets serious at about 15. So I wasn't involved in paddling until about 16, 17. So that was the
1: age. So let me ask this follow-up question. A lot of us as kids, we get involved in different activities, right? Yeah. Uh, It could be sports or or music or whatever hobbies we feel attached to or we're drawn to. But then we may do that and we may invest time and we may love that. But there must have come a point where you said, I want to go further than most people go. And I think I have the ability to do that. When did you first have the thought that you might want to set your sights on the Olympics? Because that's an unusual thing.
0: Yeah, great to explore this. It's a really interesting thing, that, that question, because I, was, I don't know if I ever made that conscious of a choice that early. And from a an aware, personal awareness perspective, Tim, I always knew I wanted to be good at something. I didn't know what it was. I just wanted to be good at something. When I really struggled at school, like academically, I was it was such a battle for me the classroom and learning environment it was so bloody hard school and I really struggled in the classroom. So my outlet I learned was my body and nature I worked out had given me something that was a wonderful tool. So by about 1819 I realized that the thing that nature had given me was better than a lot of others. So I kind of made a choice then that hey I best use that. You know like if that's my gift at this point then I better use it. So and it also culminated with an amazing story in 1988 at the 1988 Olympics a paddler called uh, Grant Davies He was an Australian who was selected to paddle the men's K1 1000 and he raced an amazing American, a guy called Greg Barton, who was the eventual Olympic gold medalist. And they raced a race that was the closest event in Olympic history in our sport. Over a thousand metres, they separated them by a slither of paper, like just, yeah, just but it was how Grant conducted himself after that was the attraction for me as a young man. And uh, he was humble. He was disappointed that the margin was so narrow, but he was humble. And I remember a reporter asking him, you know, are you disappointed? It was so close. And can you protest? And he, and his answer stuck with me all of this time. He said, if this is the worst day of my life, I'm going to have a pretty good life. And I, you know, he's Olympics, he's Olympic yeah. silver medalist. And yeah. I just thought, yeah, that's for me. I want that. I want that feeling of, and I was uh, 17 at that point in 1988. So at that point I kind of went, okay, let's see if I can do this.
1: I'm in. I'm in. Yeah, I'm in. So that yeah. Was it. Okay. Yeah. Tell us that every sport, I mean, you're a world champion and an Olympic medalist. Every sport has its own culture, maybe a subculture, right? So if you're doing the half pipe at the Winter Olympics, there's a subculture associated with that. If you're throwing the discus, there's a subculture associated with that. Tell us a little bit more about the culture of flat water kayaking. What could you share uh, with us? Because the rest of us, Dan, we're never going to step foot really in that culture we can learn about it, we can hear about it, we can watch, but we're never going to step foot into that culture and be a participant in that culture. So take us in just a little bit. So our
0: sport kayaking is traditionally for more mature men and women. So uh, you need to be quite strong. So either you're a very early developer or you're sort of mid twenties before you're really successful. So It has a serious feel to it because all of the men and women at that point, they've made a very conscious choice right around the world and even within the programs here in Australia that I'm going to sacrifice parts of my adult life to be involved. So there's a seriousness to the sport that you know you're giving up stuff, you know you're sacrificing to be involved, right? So. And I think when you're younger, say maybe 18, 19, like a lot of the swimmers are through to maybe 24, 25, there's not that realisation. But kayakers really don't come good until 25, 26, and then through to about 30, 33, they're good, right? Mm -hmm. So you know you're making some serious sacrifices. So it's serious, it's goal-driven. And because of the margin, (laughs) because the margins are so small. They're so small. They're so small. The culture of making sure that you do in the critical areas, you're 100% on it Mm -hmm. all of the time. So, And that adds to the seriousness of it, right? Because the smallest mistake, it costs you a lot. Like in Atlanta, there was 16 crews after the semifinals in a 1.3-second bracket. So you had 16... (laughs) in yeah. 1.3. So it's the racing's
1: just so tight. It's really tight. So given that, Dan, and I really thought about this in preparation for our interview today, given the margin that separates the gold from the silver, from the bronze, and then everybody else, yeah, the nature of teamwork is different because of the precision, the precision is an order of magnitude beyond what most of us will ever experience. The interdependence of the crew members, whether it's a K2 or a K4, the the way they have to be in sync, it's just beyond what most of us have ever experienced. Let me give you an example. So I played what we call division one football here in the United States in college. And there's 11 people on the team. And we all have our positions and we all have our jobs to do when we have a play. But say, for example, we have the ball and we're trying to go downfield and we're trying to score. Even if someone on our team misses his block or doesn't do something perfectly, even if two or three people don't do a great job on that play, we can still have a very successful play. We may even score a touchdown. So there's a margin of error there, but you can still be successful. And I guess what I'm seeing here is that with flatwater kayaking, we're talking about a level of precision and interdependence that is beyond what I know, what most people know. So help us understand. Let's go in, take us into the culture of a team. So Mm. you participated in four Olympics. And you, no doubt, you paddled with many different teams. Is every team's culture different? Yes. And it depends on experience. Okay.
0: It depends on where different people are in their journey in relation to... So in 2004, I paddled with a different partner than I did at the previous two Olympics. And uh, it was his first Olympics So we very much had a culture of needing to learn together really quickly under pressure. So our learning experience were magnified because we needed to get there quickly. We only had 18 months of preparation into Olympic Games in 2004 together. So everything was magnified around how quickly we needed to learn. And that was our key focus, learning to be together. The culture of, say, the guy that I went to my to three Olympics with, like Andrew Trim, I remember my father came out on the coaching boat one day with a coach, and I was on my way. We got in the car, and I'm driving back home, and Dad was silent, and I said, Dad, are you, are you okay? You know, what's up? And he said, you're so nasty to each other. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? And he just said, like, you're just at each other. And I said, well, no, not really. If Andrew wants something from me, he tells me. And I don't, there's no hang-ups about that. And if I want something from him, I tell him. If he's not doing something that I need him to do, I tell him. And it's I don't sugarcoat it. And we've been together long enough and the trust was there. And it was all in the spirit of performance. And that had never been exposed to that brutal truth before, mm. spoken in that environment. And if John had something to say to us, our coach, he would just say it. He, there was there's nothing. It was just
1: said, it was, you know, the trust was there. So the trust allowed for an extremely high tolerance for candor. Correct. So so you were very candid, but you gave and received that candor and that was the norm.
0: Yeah. And I think the key here, Tim, is because it was in the spirit of trying to be better together. Right. It was totally focused Uh, Me trying to be my best for my mate, for Trimmy, or for the crew, and him doing the same, and John trying to get the best out of us in that moment. And every single moment counts. So every stroke counts. So if it's not quite right, you're quite truthful about what you need for it to be right. So, And it was always received well because it was in the spirit of, for want of a better word, it was the spirit of being of excellence. It was in the endeavor of always trying to get better but everything was better and what you notice everything together like if if i'm a little bit late he'll notice it if he's a bit short on his catch i'll notice it you know so and we let each other know those things
1: so let's take some examples given the precise nature of the sport and the nature of the teamwork you have to sweat the details and so yeah. if we're watching A race going on, there's a hundred things perhaps that you're paying attention to, but we don't know. It's invisible to us. We don't have trained eyes. We don't Mm -hmm. understand. So give us an example or two of a small thing that could go wrong. I'm imagining as you're going through the water, you're constantly self-diagnosing and self-correcting as you go, right? As you're paddling, So what would be an example of something that where you're starting to get off a little bit?
0: Yeah. So we do sweat the small stuff, but there's a hierarchy in that as well. Okay. So there's things that you go, actually, I can let that bounce that I can get that. Like there's a hierarchy of things and the physical and mental preparation were the keys. So, And it always started here. So we did a lot of work around having a conversation just for, even if it was only for 30 seconds to a minute, prior to stepping into the boat about our mindset for that session. Mm. So what, where's our both? So we had a meeting of minds. Now, if we didn't do that, so for instance, we had a session, that we were working on technique and a lot of the session was in a narrow band between 80 and 90%, right? And we didn't discuss that beforehand and Andrew's going at slightly harder than what I'm going. Mm -hmm. The boat will feel really out of sorts. It'll feel terrible. We need to meet within a couple of percentage of the same force, as we're paddling, exactly the same force, so it feels like it's got rhythm, and and I'm with his breathing, so if I can hear him and feel his breathing, even, and I even to breathing, breathing, yeah, so I can feel his breathing. So we breathe in on one side and out on the next. So I'll breathe with him. So I'll hear that and feel that, and so I'll concentrate on. If we're out of sorts, I'll just say, "Hey, mate, it feels a bit rough, or it doesn't feel right." hey, what percentage are we doing? And we agreed to that in the boat. And then I listen really intently for his breathing. So I try and get in sync with that breathing and that helps our rhythm in the boat. So another example of not sweating or sweating the right stuff, rotation in our sport, the rotation of your body Hmm. is vital. and Because you're paddling on both sides, right? Correct. And the force actually comes from your trunk. There's enormous force when you twist, like there's enormous force here and your levers are just connectors to this. And one of the things that you need to do as extras, so sweating the small stuff, is making sure that your glutes, so your buttock muscles, are loose because they attach to your lower back. And if they're not loose or they're not stretched, they can tighten up right So I remember for a period of time, I had a new family, I wasn't doing my stretching of the evening and I was starting to get narrower, slightly narrower in my rotation, right. So Trimmy noticed that when well, my doubles partner noticed that because my power off the back of the stroke wasn't quite as good because I wasn't getting the extension. And within a week he was like, hey, What's going on with the back of your stroke? And then, of course, we extrapolated it out and cut it back. I, I'd stopped my evening stretching, uh-huh. and that was now impacting That's in the it. boat because I wasn't getting the
1: range, the
0: same range. Amazing. So I got back to stretching, and all of a sudden, the range is there. Comes so comes
1: Yeah, it comes back. Yeah. That's the kind of precision. You're in the boat. How do you communicate during a race? Because yeah. I, I've, I've been watching these K2 and K4 races, these guys are going full out, yeah. they are breathing in sync, so how do you communicate? There's very little to none, so
0: it's all done prior to Tim. Because if you look at our race, uh, the 1,000 meters takes about 3 minutes 10, the 500 is about just under 90 seconds, just under a minute and a half. Yeah. So, The boats, are they're really smoking, they're going quick. Each time you put a paddle in the water, the force that you pull on is about 55 kilos per stroke. And you move from one side to the other in a second. So you take that side to that side is done in a second. So in one second, you're moving between 100 and 110 kilos of force. And you're doing that for three minutes or a minute and a half. Now- How many strokes do you have in a minute? In a minute, so you would take about 120 strokes a minute. 120 strokes, strokes for the course. 55
1: kilos, one side and then the other. Yeah.
0: So the force and the stresses on your body is enormous. So there's no chance to communicate. So everything is set up before. So we would practice our race plan and talk about our race plan ad nauseum for months before. So we would uh, we had a session on every Tuesday in the last 10 weeks, and we would do six six practices of our race plan. So by the time we got to competition, now we did that over the course of four years, so you've practiced the same race plan over and over again and you've analyzed it and you've worked out where you were slow, where you were quick, where I was better, where Trimmy was better. So the preparation to get that 90-second race right in the heat of battle was you need the four years to handle the pressure because you need to practice it that many times that when you line up, the only thing you're focusing on is the process. That's all you need to focus on. You don't, you just, and then it happens automatically because you've done it that many times.
1: That's incredible. That's incredible. So Dan, let's talk about insights that we can glean from this sport from your career, from your experience that are transferable, that are portable, that people can actually use and apply. What are they? We're not going to go into your world and participate that way. We can maybe hop in a kayak and we can try it out, but we're never going to be able to experience. We can't replicate that experience but yeah. what can we learn from it that really does apply?
0: I really appreciated the little bit of prep we did prior to uh, so that we were ready for this question and because it requires it required for me a lot of thought. I go back to my original decision as a 17 year old to chase an Olympic dream. What can we learn from that? I think the first one is we all have strengths and weaknesses. There's things that nature has given us for free and it's a gift, whether it be amazing academically, whether it be able to connect to other humans, whether it be a body, good looks, whatever you know, like you've got
1: strengths, and they were certain, given certain to you. endowments, right? That you didn't, yeah, yeah. you didn't earn, you didn't earn them. They yeah. were given to you. <laughs> they came. They came as yeah. part of the package.
0: Yeah, though, and I think to take those for granted and not to maximize them is a real shame. Is a real shame. So. My thing is get aware of your strengths because you'll have everyone's got them. Everyone's got strengths. There's no one on the planet that doesn't have a really great set of strengths. And teams and organizations are built on individual strengths. So, Isn't it also
1: true though, Dan, that sometimes the strengths that we have are obvious. They are visible to everyone. We can see them. They're just apparent. You have these obvious strengths, endowments, aptitudes, talents, gifts, whatever you want to call them. But others are not. You've Mm -hmm. got to dig for them. You've got to excavate them. You don't even know that you have them and you're not going to be able to discover them until you dig because they're not visible.
0: It's like our nature in Australia is um, there's only for a lot of our trees to propagate, there's only one way for them to propagate, which is fire. Right? So our natural state in Australia is drought, fire, rains and then you have this enormous lush period and to learn from nature is a realization that you've got to put those strengths under heat to pop for them okay. to pop i love it you know, there's the there's the analogy you've got to put them under heat you've got to heat them up and really test them and then all of a sudden what happens is you realize that they pop and you're better for it so but they don't come out unless you put the heat on you've got to put yourself in uncomfortable situations for extended periods of time
1: so we've, remember that line, listeners, you've got to put your strengths under heat to pop the way that these Australian trees propagate. That is a brilliant insight. That's not comfortable. No. <laughs> and, no. and you got to stay with it though. Sometimes it's years.
0: I'm watching my son forge his own paddling career. He's 23 And he's delving into this world of international competition and kayaking. And one of the conversations I always have with him is, "Are you holding your face to the fire long enough?" You know. So there's a commitment to being uncomfortable for extended periods of time, and. In the athletic world, it takes, I reckon, a good two years of hard toil for you to start to really see those natural attributes start to come to the fore. And Jackson, my son, he's just starting to realise something. You can just start to see some of that coming. And I also know from my own professional career, you know, and uh, and you'd be able to espouse to this, how long did it take you to find your way as a professional in this world? You know, it just it takes years of effort and I think we rush too much to wanting the outcome as opposed to go, actually, I'm just going to sit in the learning, I'm just going to sit in that and work away, work away. And what will happen is I'll be ready for the opportunity when I get there. Yeah. So it's, you know, and the harder I work and just sitting in that learning space where we're, we're grafting and we're failing and we're not quite getting what we want, that's teaching us how to get where we need to go. So that's the bit that I think is really needed for us to be, we actually don't focus on that enough, Tim. Whereas I say to organizations, that's the gold, you know, that's the gold is there. That's where we learn as to be better people that tests our character, our work all of a sudden has meaning because we've sacrificed some comfort to get
1: an outcome, you know? So I would love to hear you say that Dan, because there is such a thing as planned deprivation, you're planning for it. You know that there's a suspension between cause and effect. You know that it takes time. We often say on our team, find the price, pay the price. Don't yeah. even think about looking for a shortcut. Don't think about looking for a workaround, a back door. Just get that out of your mind. Yeah, find the price, pay the price. But along the way, if it's a worthwhile goal, it is going to take some time. It's going to be a long-term commitment. You're playing the long game, not the short game, right?
0: Yes. So, Tim, I'd actually be interested, and I'm sure this is something you could help with, is how do you rationalize that commitment? Because it's a commitment, right? You're making a choice to sacrifice things for the longer term. Right. So how, in your mind, because you've done it, how do you... How do you rationalize
1: that? Well, I think it's all about trade-offs. Yeah, We have, I mean, life is about the allocation of scarce resources. That's what it's about. We have time, we have energy, we have means, and those are the primary scarce resources that we have to get to allocate. And scarcity is the way that we live life. And so we've got to figure out where we're going to invest and what we're going to say no to. And this applies to business because... (laughs) You think about strategy, strategy is the deliberate reduction of alternatives. It's about saying no to things. It's about intelligently allocating our resources, where we're gonna say yes, where we're gonna say no. And so rationalizing an investment, that means that we are very clear about what we're gonna forego. I love that. Right, it's very clear. And we're gonna analyze it again and again and again because we're not going into it quickly. We're not going into it easily. We're going to take a long time. We're going to take a long time before we make a long-term commitment, because we know what it means. We're going to count the cost. We're going to figure out what it costs. And we also realize the rewards aren't going to come early. They're not going to come early. You think about your career. I think it's interesting. You said this is an Olympic sport that you really peak in your 20s because you have to be at your physical peak as yeah. well as your mental and emotional peak. you got to be able to put it all together, right? So I agree with that. Let me ask you a related question, Dan. As you've gone through your career and now you're working with sporting institutions in Australia, you're working with corporations, you're working with all manner of organizations, and you're taking the insights and the lessons and you're teaching those. How have you personally been able to increase your self-awareness, which is so important, as you have moved through your career? How have you done that? With difficulty. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you for being honest.
0: Yeah. Is that our life's journey, that? to I can't help but think that mastery of self, whatever that looks like, wherever you are in your life is, it's got to be the most meaningful thing, Do you know. So to answer that, I've made a commitment, even as a young man, that self-awareness was so important. I got a gift, a gentleman in a real estate, I was doing some work and they were looking after it in residential real estate here in Australia. And they were really strongly into personal development. The gentleman's name is Gary Pittard and I still love him to death and I love him for the gift. He gave me Wayne Dyer's cassette tapes and they were cassettes. This is how long ago they were. And I used to play them in my car. And I think the recordings were called Your Erroneous Zones. And that was way back in maybe 1993, 94 I received this tape deck mm. and he sent it to me in the post. And, from that point on, I the journey was always for me to do the work on myself so that I can be useful for others. And I reckon that's a lifelong journey and useful for others. That's my children, my wife, the people I'm in community with in Surf Club and around here. And it's just for me, it's the continuation of receiving feedback, learning about the choices, analyzing those choices. So I meditate and I journal so that I'm aware of the things that I've, for want of a better word, stuffed up in my day or, or my thinking's not right. or, And I've got people that are truthful to me. You know, my wife is 100% truthful and if I'm not in good form, she'll let me know. So I think having a commitment to the awareness helps you elevate self. Yeah. And then if you do that in the service of others, then your excellence equals better service to others. And I love that equation. The best version of me in the service of others, geez, I'm valuable then. Yeah. And I want to make an impact. I want to be valuable to the people I'm around. So I want that for me, not in a selfish way, but in a in a meaningful way. But I also want that for them, Tim. Do you know? Yeah.
1: yeah. That reminds me, we conducted a, an employee survey a few months ago. We asked a very simple question. The question Was this in life generally? Do you find more personal satisfaction in contribution or consumption? And we were, it's a fascinating question. And we were struck by the answer or the the response patterns. 98% of those surveyed said contribution, yeah, 2% said consumption. Now, we have to acknowledge that consumption's an important part of life. We, we have to live and survive and flourish. But it just shows you the depth of the human need to be able to make a meaningful contribution. So I'm thinking yeah. about that. And then given what you've said, I'm also thinking about the fact that leadership begins in the inner world. It begins with you. And so you have to lead yourself before you're going to lead a team. And if you can't lead yourself, if you've never demonstrated the ability to lead yourself, you're going to have a very hard time leading a team. So let's go back to a crew of four. So K4 configuration is one of those athletes designated the leader. How does that work? It could naturally
0: arrive because you've got an athlete that's more experienced or sets the highest tempo or standard within their preparation. Mm -hmm. So normally the leader is not necessarily the fastest athlete or the best athlete because there is a talent equation in that because some people are even at that right level, like the tiniest amount of extra talent makes a difference on race day. So you have someone who is slightly better but their standards might be slightly lower. So normally it comes down to you gravitate The men and women I've seen be successful, they gravitate towards the people that set the highest standards on a regular basis. So that becomes your leader.
1: But you don't officially designate one of the crew members as the leader. No, no, because... So this really then is a culture of shared leadership. Yeah. And collaboration.
0: Collaboration. You said you talked about leadership's internal you just won't make it in those performance environments if you're not personally responsible. If you don't own your stuff, your development, don't own your mindset, don't own your emotional control, don't own the fact that we've got some sacrifices to make to get to where we need to go. If you don't own that at the personal level, you just won't survive. It's almost like a prerequisite in that performance environment, if you're going to survive, personal responsibility is the first thing you want to handle.
1: It just got to handle it. So when you're moving up to that level of performance, no one has to say anything to you. You're going to self-select out. Is that yeah. normally how it works?
0: Yeah, you just get found out, Tim. You know, And I think that's the single biggest difference. You know, People ask me about what's the difference between an athletic world and a corporate world. I think the athletic world, once you're at that level, the level of vetting along the pathway is so extreme and the people you get are only elite performers. Whereas I think when we we can have in our workplace, we can have people who start at the very beginning of their journey and they're working their way through with people who are elite in their journey and you can get that. That's the workplace. Whereas in a high performance environment in sport, you're only getting the men and women at the end of their journeys right up the top. You're not getting a workforce with all these different. So I think leadership is actually, leadership of your corporate sector in teams is actually harder because you you've, got got to go back. you've got to go back and bring people along the journey with you. Yeah, you know, yeah. You've got to teach and coach and coaching is such an important thing to help people who are starting their
1: journey here come right up to their best. Let me ask you a question based on that, Dan. So in in sport, when we coach, we don't do it once a year. (laughs) We don't do it once a quarter. We don't do it once a month. Coaching is continuous. It's a continuous feedback cycle, right? All the time. It's all the time. It never never stops. stops. But in the corporate world, We often don't do that. It's one of the biggest mistakes we make in the corporate world, Tim.
0: We don't invest in the concept of continuous coaching, those moments that are everywhere every day to help someone be better, whether it's just a repositioning of behavior or a mindset or a slight skill or connecting people to collaborate and helping them understand how they're going to collaborate together and setting that environment up for success. I, That coaching
1: culture is so important to long-term success. It's so interesting because in the corporate world, a lot of times, coaching is formal, it's scheduled, it's scripted. We get all ready for it, and it's infrequent. And and those of us, those of us that have come from a sporting background, we kind of look at that and we think, "How's that going to work?" We've been so deeply socialized and acculturated in an yeah. environment where coaching is informal, it's continuous, it's unscripted, it's unrehearsed, it's the way we live. Yeah. And, and yeah. so do, do you find yourself really emphasizing that? In terms of culture formation, I think we're not there yet in organizations. I think we're starting to get there, we're starting to make the transition but it's really a transformation in creating this coaching culture that you and I grew up in. Yeah. But it's a little bit astonishing, isn't it? I remember when I took my first corporate job and they said, and you're gonna have a performance review at the end of the year. And I thought, what? So what do I get in the meantime? Yeah. Well, well, we don't know if you get anything in the meantime.
0: (laughs) I remember that. And negatively, I thought, Crocky, I'm gonna be a long way off track yeah. by, the time, get to
1: by that. the time. That's right. Because <laughs> you, know? you need a short feedback cycle. Very yeah. short feedback cycle because it's like the fundamental concept, the lean methodology, which is a rapid cycle, test and learn. So you it's it's a rapid cycle. We need the feedback constantly. Okay, so yeah. let me we're getting to the end of our time, Dan, but let me ask you a couple of questions. Who was the best coach you ever had? And why? Maybe there's more than one, but just pick one and help us understand the impact of that. Why? Why would you pick that coach? Yeah.
0: So so I, I would say firstly, dad, just because he showed me the standards by which you need to live. And that coaching in the family, it still goes on. I'm 51 years old. He's not done. (laughs) He's not done. (laughs) So he's still providing advice and correction. And so I think the parental care that goes into him wanting the best for me, it was, I was never, when I grew up, we didn't have a lot, but geez, I had everything I needed. And that was the love and the care from both mum and dad. So I was really fortunate for that. And it absolutely made up for all the lack of possessions we had. So easily, it was great. So the guy that took us to Olympics was a guy called John Samigi, And the reason why I think he was an amazing coach, because he just consistently reset what best looks like. He was the most demanding of individuals, not in an overbearing way, but just always asking us to step up in our physical preparation in relation to sport. And then I've had some people who have helped emotionally and mentally along the way. Uh, and I think that's they're probably the most important. And I go back to people like Gary Pittard, who invested and was willing to challenge me to be better emotionally and mentally on a regular basis. And I had a uh, work Leader Elizabeth Franks and and she consistently challenged the better thought processes. So what's the best of us now, or what's hey, what's the highest impact we can have? And would always challenge that in a gentle way. So and would leave you with it. Didn't give you the answer. Would just mm-hmm. ask you the question and then mm-hmm. leave you. So you generated that yourself. So but I think that the common theme throughout is like you said it was regular or in some instances was daily 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 challenging as it was regular it was always deeply out of love or care Mm -hmm. deeply out of both it was and care for me and my best and for what was available to us so it was deeply centered in that and lastly I think it was the truth was always told if they put it that way so Mm -hmm. that's what I'd love to aspire to be for others and what a gift for leaders, Tim, if we could give that to our the people in corporate sector, if we could help our leaders come from a position where we're constantly setting high standards and we're giving people the safety and security to strive for that and we do it out of care because we want the best for them, those two combined, if we can help leaders do that for others in an environment, oh,
1: geez, that's somewhere
0: I'd want to work.
1: I love what you said, care on the one hand, and truth on the other yeah and that combination is everything it's everything and as you said intent matters the intent with mm. which your coach comes to you the intent of mm-hmm. your teammates the intent of your co-workers we're going to make mistakes along the <sighs> way we will we'll make mistakes along the way culture is fragile but we can overcome those things if the intent's there, right? Then yeah,
0: I think it's inevitable. We make mistakes, isn't it, Tim? If we're if we're pressing into areas emotionally, physically, and from a results perspective that are unknown to us because they're green fields, because they're the next standard or the next level, it's inevitable that we won't get it right. So, our relationship with failure when we're pressing hard needs to be healthy. I think our relationship with failure, if we're lazy or not having a go or not 100% in, that's a different conversation. That's different, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's different. It's a different conversation. But when we're pressing hard and we're stretched physically and emotionally and skills-wise and our our skills our, or our our mental skills, our emotional fitness isn't what it should be and we get found out, I actually think our relationship with that moment needs to be healthy in as much that, hey, you're probably where you need to be at this point. This is an
1: important moment. But Dan, if the effort's there, what are you gonna say? As a wonderful teacher that I know said, mistakes are not the exception, they're the expectation. So if the effort is behind the mistakes, we're gonna cheer you on. We're gonna cheer you on. I love that, I love that. Well, let me ask you one question Dan, to wrap us up today, man, I'd love to go on another hour. This would be fantastic. If you could tell you have such an incredible wealth of experience to draw from, if you could tell the world one thing, this is a tough question, but if you could tell the world one important thing, and I'm sure there are many, but what would it be? Probably two things, Tim, if I could. So
0: there's a kindness that's required But kindness doesn't mean we're soft. In fact, kindness sometimes comes to us in a way that feels harsh, but there's a kindness that we should give each other to help each other cope with and get better at the challenges ahead. So firstly, that's the first thing. And then secondly is um, your contribution matters. It really matters. So make it matter. Take work seriously. Playing small doesn't help anyone, you know, like the bigger you are and there's enough room in the world for everyone to be at their best. What a place that would look like, you know, like, so for me, your contribution matters to community, to family, to the thing you're doing well. So do it well, it matters, take it seriously. So, and create meaning around being good at what you're doing now.
1: Especially Dan in the pandemic environment, we're about two years into this. I can't think of better and more appropriate advice. I appreciate that. Thanks so very much for joining me in this discussion. More importantly, thank you for not only your journey, but what you've learned and now uh, being able to teach and communicate that to others. Because it's not really about the sport itself, is it? Because there are a lot of different sports out there.
0: No, it's the um, chasing of something that's worthy, whatever that is. Whatever. And we've all got that in our lives. We've all got something that we can chase that's worthy. And what it, that worthiness, what it helps us become, that's what it's about. Yeah. You
1: know? Yeah. Well, thanks so much. It's been a privilege to spend this time with you. I appreciate it.
0: And the same, Tim. I'm absolutely wrapped. I got an invite. So thank you so
1: much. Ah, oh, thanks. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today on the Culture by Design podcast. Be sure to subscribe and listen to new episodes every week. And if you'd like to see more of the work we're doing, go to leaderfactor.com.